You're listening to a podcast brought to you by international law firm Trowers and Hamlins, combining market sector thought leadership, advice, and ideas, helping businesses and governments prepare for the future. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest Trowers podcast. My name is David Cordery. I'm a partner in the projects and construction here at Trowers. Um, at Trowers, we're passionate not only about construction and the built environment, but also about responsible business, um, encouraging our clients to think about the impact of their business on the world in terms of environmental issues, social issues, and dare I say, even moral issues. The subject we're going to talk about today is environmental, social and governance issues, what's become referred to in shorthand as ESG. We're going to briefly assess the state of progress uh, in the construction industry and see what the state of play is. And in that conversation today, I'm joined by Tunde Agoro. Tunde is the head of ESG at the engineering design consultancy Hydrock. He's a member of the senior management team in their sustainability division. He's also a chartered environmentalist and has more than 20 years experience of working in the built environment, which in practical terms means that whilst you will hear a lot of opinions about these subjects um, in the media, Tunde actually knows what he's talking about and has experience uh, in the built environment. So Tunde, thank you so much for joining us today. Can you start by telling me a bit more about you, your role, and how, in particular, how one becomes a chartered environmentalist and what's involved there? All right. Uh, thank you very much, David. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me. I think it's a great pleasure to share uh, this um, forum with you. Um, yes, uh, as you said, you know, um, I am head of ESG at Hydrock. I do hope I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's definitely something uh, of a passion for me. Um, and um, in my role, I lead and drive the delivery of sustainability outcomes at project and organizational level. Um, it's not something I take lightly because I believe that buildings, you know, and development and the build sector needs to be better for people, needs to be better you know, for the planet, and it does take an intentionality, you know, in, in order to do that. So, yeah, I'm, my, my foremost client is IDROC. So getting our own acts together, walking the talk and, you know, having our docs in a row, in you know, a manner of speaking, uh, but also um, supporting our own clients and uh, various partners in the industry in terms of walking their own journey as well towards becoming more climate conscious, being more socially responsive, being human centric, you know, as well, because this is what ESG really uh, is, is about, you know, it's about doing the right things and doing it purposefully. You talked about um, my qualification as a chartered environmentalist. Um, it's been many years ago now. Um, so as any professional, we are governed by institutional bodies. Um, so for me, my career in sustainability really started an environmental benchmarking and assessment. And um, I joined the Institute of Environmental Management and Assessment short by EMA. So I started as um, an affiliate member and then, then went on to being an associate. Then I um, went through a series of interviews and I had to write some essays and I had to sit down with um, peers, you know, that have gone ahead in the industry to demonstrate competencies along, you know, a series of 
criteria, which includes leadership, influence, technical knowledge, you know, application, you know, of knowledge, you know, and all of all that. So I think it's very important for any professional, you know, that you do align with a body because it governs your activity. It helps you to understand your limit. It helps you to understand codes of conduct and ethics and how you should operate in that particular space. And having a designation as a chartered environmentalist is also very important, not just for my own career development alone, but also for the clients that we work with because it gives them the confidence and assurance that you know um we, we we i know what i'm talking about you know uh, and it's really nice to have that sort of credibility signed off by pairs independent pairs in in, in the industry so yeah and uh, it's, a, it's a very rigorous tough process uh but it's done on a rolling basis you know i i encourage uh many people that are in the field to do likewise and i'm happy to mentor as many people as i can i have been mentoring people to you know and um, attain their own chartership as well um because i think um, the more people we can get in that space in terms of competence expertise knowledge and beauty and application of knowledge you know it's really key i'll draw the line on there <laughs> no and, and 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 i think it may surprise some people how old a qualification that is because i think people and and a lot of the clients and contacts that we talk to maybe are sort of new to this space and it hasn't been part of the conversation it certainly wasn't mm. sort of 10 15 years ago in the way that it is now and i suspect that that qualification is going to become more and more popular and we are already i, I suspect flooded with consultancy firms talking about this subject but it would be interesting to know how many people actually have the qualifications to back that up the next thing i was going to talk about i mean as i say a lot of our the people we speak to are setting ESG targets. They're publishing them on their website. They're having that public discussion. Um, occasionally, though, when we drill down into the detail of some of the things they're talking about, a lot of them, especially sort of people who own larger portfolios, are still in that process. And it's a it's a big and challenging process of assessing their existing portfolio of properties identifying the challenges and of course you know not not only the properties but their their business as well what would you say was the best starting place for people who are at that stage and and really just sort of new entrant to the ESG space and seeing you know seeing what the next set steps are yeah, um, thanks, David. Um, I must say first, I do empathise with many organisations that are caught by this ever-changing, you know, regulatory landscape around ESG, um, very much more on an incremental trajectory, actually. And um, whilst you could class reactions into different categories, some knee-jerk, some out of here, some out of, well, we don't want to be, you know, left out, you know, and um, uh, it's it's a very confusing minefield as well in terms of what we need to do. And I'm speaking particularly, you know, about the construction and real estate in industry because it almost feels like a new thing to us, even though you could say historically it's been dealt with in one shape or form, you know, albeit not quite the way it's been you know, um, taking forward. Uh, I, I would say for every organization, you know, approaching this, you know, be honest in the first instance, be honest, start from exactly where you are. And it's 
good to understand where exactly you are, uh, which is why for us, you know, we when we provide this as a service, you know, to, to clients, we want to come on board as your trusted advisor, you know, want to get embedded, you know, in your team as your partner, because it is a journey. First of all, it's a journey of discovering your business, your purpose, because it cannot be another tick box exercise. You know, we've been guilty of this too long in the past sustainability and environmental benchmarking certifications and green ratings and all of all that have been seen as added-ons as um, altruism as a good to have in nicety it's no longer that mm-hmm. it's an imperative right now you know and, and therefore it has to be married embedded you know in a company DNA in an organizational's DNA and to do that you have to do it properly you know to do it properly means you need to align it and integrate it with with your social purpose you've got to integrate it into your values it's got to have essential buying from the top and it's got to translate down to every layer you know of the organization it's got to become a common conversation in every corner of the office you know and and the way to do that is to have that initial buy-in to engage with it honestly get a trusted advisor on board independent views and opinion get a baseline because there'll be good things you're already doing that are perhaps not captured or that are not properly structured in certain ways and understanding that and then knowing where the gaps are, knowing where the opportunities are, knowing where the constraints might be, then you could then have a clear roadmap in terms of what do we do next? What are our action plan? What's step one? What's step two? What's step three? And don't necessarily fall into the trap of let's just get the low-hanging fruits. Let's just go for the easy wins. Yes, it's good to do that, but don't just go for easy. Go for what is right, what is appropriate what is relevant at a time and take it from there. And, and I think clients look at this sometimes and they, they, they are intimidated by, the, by mm. the size of the challenge ahead of them. But as you say, it isn't necessarily all about you know, huge amount of investment and time. Sometimes this is just a mindset. And within a meeting and an open sort of meeting, you can you can actually make a lot of progress just by starting that conversation and and looking into how you currently do business. Absolutely. With that in mind, I guess, you know, there are there's a lot of work being done about ESG metrics. And Mm. how important do you think it is that ESG metrics are standardized? Or is it much more about sort of looking at your own business, having flexibility? Do metrics, do you think, sort of Mm. drive box ticking? And is that a conversation we need to get away from? Or is there a place for those metrics in holding people to account? Wow, that is a fantastic question, David. We could spend a day and a half on that one alone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so I think, um, let me see if I can differentiate, first of all, from metrics and ratings. So metrics, when you say metrics, I think what we are referring to is, you know, um, material issues or headlines, sustainability topics around environmental, social, or governance. So be it water consumption, energy, carbon, biodiversity, you know, or even diversity, whether at board level or at organizational level, whether it's community engagement, social value created. So those are metrics. So for all of all those 
you know, issues or metrics, if you like, you know, you've got ways to measure them and benchmark your performance against them. So you would have KPIs, key performance indicators, which you then measure yourself against. Yes, so those are very important. Metrics are essential because it's what gets measured, that gets managed. You know, a cliche you've heard many times, but it's so profoundly true. I speak to organizations around diversity and inclusivity, for example, Mm -hmm. and they struggle with understanding what the challenge is because they don't measure it. They don't really know how diverse they are. Actually, they do know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they don't know. <laughs> yes. Because, yes. you know, many organizations don't track, they don't monitor this data, you know, intentionally. They actually don't do it because they don't want to appear as though they are targeting, mm-hmm. you know, certain classifications or categories of people and you get unintended consequences not having an understanding of the makeup of your people and how truly inclusive you may be so yeah what gets measured gets measured there is a there is a place for metrics on the flip side then there is the ratings where organizations get scored based on performance against a suit of metrics and issues and that varies you know you've got over 200 different ESG rating systems all looking at different issues, looking at different metrics, different scoring methodology, you know, and it's hard to compare apples for apples. You know, I mean, we got issues recently in the media around Tesla, for example, being mm-hmm. kicked off the standard and poor 500 index because of very poor performance, you know, on their ESG, particularly in the social aspect, even though people could argue, well, Tesla is an environmentally friendly business. They are promoting electric vehicles and stuff like that, which is definitely should be good for the environment. But socially, they've shown very poor management of their supply chain and particularly around human rights, you know, and then around looking after the people. And this is why ESG is really important. It's not just about environment. It's also about people and societal impacts, you know, so it's a lot more encompassing so yeah metrics are very important they're very essential organizations um, will have different issues that are more pertinent to them than others depending on their sphere of operation and influence and depending on where they are in the supply chain and it's very important to understand that and and that's why it's very difficult to sort of standardize it but it helps also, you know, to have a common metric, you know, and it maybe it's got to be done on a sector by sector basis. Um, but um, currently with the rating systems we've got, you know, they are mishmash of different things, you know, mm. it's terribly confusing it hasn't helped the case for esg because many people have looked at the flaws of the esg rating systems and they pretty much attacked esg as a whole as it's rubbish it's nonsense it's not fit for purpose you know it's not delivering outcomes it's not and that's basically uh, looking at a rating system you know and then extrapolating that to a much bigger, wider subject because of how it's poorly delivered or messaged, you know, in one particular space. And and that's disingenuous in in certain quarters, Um, very misleading, you know, Mm. across the board. And um, uh, it's not helping anyone in that regard because basically we then 
run the risk of throwing the baby with away with the bathwater. But rather what we need to do is to take a second look at the rating systems. Are they appropriate? Should we be doing this? Should we look for a much more standardized approach to measuring organizational performance, you know, project performance, you know, and I think, yes, we should. Uh, and I know there are bodies internationally, um, the ISSB, for example, looking at how they can, um, you know, bring a more unified sort of standard, you know, for um, ESG and sustainability. And it's not gonna be a perfect science. You know, there are already huge criticisms, you know, in terms of what that is doing. And one of them is around the context of double materiality you know so um most esg ratings they they look at the impact the climate and the environment and society has on a business so looking at the organization's risk exposure you know as a result of climate change um but they fail to look at the organization's impact out Mm -hmm. so looking in they're not looking out you know and it's one of the flaws of many rating systems and which is why many people misconstrue ESG as just a risk assessment for organizations you know to manage their performance and therefore not generating any additionality or sustainability outcomes or tangible value for society and the planet as a whole Uh, and this is why we need to rethink this properly ESG and sustainability has been looked at in the whole, holistically. So you've got to look at both your risk exposure, but also the impacts and the influence you have on society and on the planet, you know. And so metrics, very useful, very important. We've got to measure in order to be able to manage and in order to be able to challenge and drive ourselves forward, you know, and, 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 and see the future that we want for ourselves and our children. You know, we, we can't just think that business as usual or our heads buried in the sand is going to change anything. No, you wouldn't. Well, it's, it's very interesting. And I think you've, you've hit a couple of issues right on the head there. And, and one of them, I think, is when I've had these conversations with clients and other people over the years, I think it's fair to say that the construction industry is, is sort of more comfortable with the idea of environmental metrics, waste, greenhouse gases, mm. you know, those kind of metrics or those measurables. But actually, it's it's the S part, it's the social part that actually, you know, it is maybe a little less easy to pin down and and to measure um we've been doing quite a lot of work i mean over the years we've we've done a lot of work and published reports on the the Mm. societal value of developments and how Mm. you you know how you build that in as a metric and and what the impact of developments are on a social scale Mm. um We've also been looking at um, contract drafting and whether it's appropriate to try and build some of these metrics into uh, construction contracts, development agreements, sale contracts, etc. And one of the issues we've come across, we've been doing a series of articles on the Chancery Lane project, which is a project where lawyers input for free into a bank of construction clauses, development clauses, um, land clauses for contracts that people can then use and, and build into their contracts. But one thing Excellent. that that has highlighted quite starkly is that some of those are, ve- are very measurable and their obligations in a way that you can put them in a contract and measure performance mm. against them. Others of them are understandably much more aspirational. And, mm. you know, you will 
do your best to make the world a better place type drafting, which is great. And I think it's worth having those kind of statements in contracts. But the construction world is a very practical place, I find. And it's that society part of the question that I think lawyers, builders, you know, people with the money, you know, they're not resistant to the idea, Mm. but it's just feeling more comfortable with how we measure that. Yeah. Yeah, that's another very good point, David, you know, and if you remember, I said at the beginning, um, for any organization that want to really tackle these issues, honestly, and, you know, they've got to not just look at the easy wins and the low hanging fruits, don't just go for easy, Mm. and the path of least resistance, because that might not yield the, the the most return for you or value for you long term it's about looking at the the real issues you know the pertinent thing the things that matter the most and they may be challenging but then you've got to address it you know with a bit of courage and bravery and then you know absolutely and yeah. intentionality and and this is exactly the point around environmental and social so because most environmental metrics and issues are quantifiable you know you could find a very simple metric for energy for carbon for water you know for waste pollution emissions all sorts of things easily but when you come to the social aspect how do you put a number against social value you know and we've seen various national frameworks and some organization coming up with proxy values for what social value return is in terms of a a development you know construction project or even an organization's activity in, in in the society i struggle a bit with that because how do you put a pound to the support you give an individual helping them back into employment and how you help someone develop their mental well-being, you know, and all sorts of things, you know, as a result of that. It's very challenging to do that. How do you put a, a, a pound sign to creating a new vibrant community? creating a sense of place you know creating delight creating social cohesion you know it's really difficult but does that mean we shouldn't do it absolutely not and i think government recognizes the importance of this which is why we've seen the social value act which is driving the development of social value reporting on certain thresholds of government procured contracts and then it's having a huge impact on the construction industry and there are organizations that are actually doing it not just because they're procuring stuff but because they recognize its best practice they recognize it helps them to show that they are a force for good and they're responsible business but how we do measure it is still a big issue for debate i say not everything needs a number or a pound sign you know assigned to it some things may be qualitative and let it be that let's measure true value let's measure outcomes let's look at how we better people's life maybe we need to tell more stories you know about what a development has achieved and let it be that you know and and where it's possible to record specific quantities and metrics fine um you know we probably donated x thousands of pounds towards a local charity yes fine that's that's measurable we um you know volunteered certain numbers of hours and days supporting a community 
project or initiative, fine, that is measurable. But beyond the input output, you know, what I'm even more interested in is what's the outcome of it? What has changed yes. in the lives of people? So those things may be more qualitative and may require further conversation and dialogue in order to tease those out. And and sometimes we're lucky, I think, that the planets sort of align and actually sort of economic drivers suddenly get us to a point where actually even those people who have been dragging their heels a little bit there's suddenly a commercial incentive to do these things and i don't want to be sort of you know commercially um cynical mm. about these things mm. but one of the things obviously we've been struggling with um in the industry for a while is skills and labor shortages um now a solution to that is clearly to make construction more attractive to mm. the younger generation, have that pipeline of, of skilled people coming through. And part of that is having diversity in the, in the education system to sort of seed that. I, I was quite reassured, I think, to read that um, engineering and STEM subjects are becoming more popular in, in schools and universities. Um, the challenges being you know, difficulty in finding teaching resources for those and also that i think we still even through the education system it's still quite a male dominated subject and therefore that translates into you know when we come to the construction industry it still feels like a very male dominated um mm. industry now that's changing in law i think because i, I mm. sit in a team where you know we have more females that, than men in the team um we have representation at partner level is that something that you are seeing in other organizations and is is that something that you still think you know the, the construction industry as a whole has a lot of work to do oh yes dave and i think um a, a lot of people do recognize that you know the construction industry has been historically very much male dominated and um it, it's starting to change you know and it's changing gradually we we, we have some environmental consultancies where the CEO are females, which is almost unheard of. Um, yes. We're seeing more female partners as well. We're seeing more females, you know, in, in senior leadership positions, you know, uh, and, and for us, for example, in iDrop, we do have a target of a 50-50 sort of ratio in terms of um, intake at apprenticeship and graduate levels, starting to change the balance of things. And um, just like you said about your firm, you know, and the representation in terms of gender and women within the ESG council that um, I chair in Hydro as well, we've got very balanced diversity of male, female, and um great representation as well i think that's really important balance of technical and non-technical people uh, but more specifically around stem i mean we can't overemphasize the need to promote this to make this even more attractive to young people particularly girls so for me i've been a stem ambassador for about 10 years now you know and i go to lots of local schools to um promote science subject and engineering and, and, and what I view and I, I totally enjoy it. Uh, I think it's an opportunity to own my own um, communication skills as well you know how you make something so technical very lay to nine-year-olds and eight-year-olds yeah. and, and it, it's, it's it's an amazing art and skill you know to be able to dummy down things and it, it really helps you to be able to engage and come across more clearly without you know all the unnecessary jargons which 
which I try to get rid of in my conversations around, you know, all these technical um, subjects. Um, so education is really important and it's one of the challenges that we're having currently in the ESG and sustainability space is that um, we don't have enough people that are very skilled in, in this. And um, it's interesting as well that, you know, if you look at the higher institutions as well, you've got lots of different programs, you know, around environmental areas, architectural areas, which sustainability always has a bit of an elective or an add-on to it. And that's got to change. You know, it's got to become a lot more mainstream. You know, I heard in the news just about um, last week or so that there's an African nation that they've made coding, you know, part of a primary school curriculum. Wow. I'm like, whoa, that is serious. <laughs> but it, it tells you where the thinking is, you know, like, look, this, these are skills for the future. And I think in similar vein, we want to see sustainability in ESG as part of curriculum at the very early stage as well and even at institutional level you know you know to to, to 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 because it's important to people you know so that would help you know in terms of bridging that skills gap and um, uh, getting more engineers and consultants to become stem ambassadors and speaking to young people around the world you know and making this a lot more attractive beyond just football and politics you know i mean yes. football is attractive i mean <laughs> Well, I, I've always had a sneaking suspicion that the best way of engaging the youth is to put some kind of reality TV show on based around engineering and see if we can get people people involved through through the media. Because I think the mm. again, I mean, you know, it's so important to have these conversations with with the upcoming generation, and it's mm. it's admirable that that you're doing that. I, I get the feeling that there's this sort of you know you engage with it as a child maybe and play with toys which is you know still mm. there's a lot of construction related toys and lego and those kind of things but then in the teenage years we probably lose a lot of people in terms of their their interest and how you maintain that yeah but, but but just on that as well david you know construction is more than just brick and mortar mm. you know construction is changing rapidly you know there is a place of technology there there's um you know machine learning artificial intelligence we talk a lot about parametric design in terms of working out the appropriate or the best form factor for a building in terms of orientation daylight you know solar gain and ventilation and all that kind of stuff um in fact methods of construction are rapidly being disrupted mm. you know we've got 3d printing you know we've got other modern methods of construction um that already right out there so construction can become very very interesting uh, and real estate as a whole as well you know to young people it just depends on how you showcase it the, the last time i was at a primary school we had this virtual reality gears which we wore and the kids could see yes side of augmented reality and and it, it was yeah, yeah that, that that's that's how you engage them mm. they loved it mm. you know they're like oh this is really cool and we need to bring it to them at that level and i take the point you made about <laughs> or be joking about the reality <laughs> show but a form of gamification can be interesting to how we 
bring this subject to kids. And again, like I said, it's all about engagement and creating that interest, inspiring this, this, this future generation. And this is one of the reasons why I continue to do this. Uh, when in one of my first lectures about six, seven years ago at the University of Bath, uh, about three of the courts walked up to the lantern and told me, we want to do what you do. And I was like, yes. And I have seen a number of my students come into work with the organizations I have worked at, both my past roles and even most recently, you know, uh, we just had a, a student from the university about join us uh, about three months ago and because she was on my program. And I think that's great. That's mm-hmm. where we want to go. You don't just teach and abandon, but assimilate and inspire indeed. Yes. Yes. And I think we need to make more of those good news stories. I mean, it, it definitely that's how you sort of feedback, you know, the, the progress in the industry and, and inspire people, I think. Um, mm. I'm conscious we could talk for hours on this subject. Um, and it is a broad subject. There's one last issue I want to talk about. And you've already mentioned it. You know, we've looked a lot about modern methods of construction and taking elements of construction off of a windy, wet, cold construction site mm. and moving them in, into factories it seems in a way that that um, progress towards mmc can resolve a few of these issues in terms of energy efficiency of buildings um, precision engineering use of technology cutting waste and even social issues like diversity of the workforce making use of of local Mm -hmm. labor in your view is mmc being sufficiently widely adopted or again is that somewhere that that possibly we need more encouragement through either government action or just uh, more skills training yeah this is one of those areas where i just go my goodness come on construction come on guys (laughs) yeah yeah you know the the level of inertia in the industry is unbelievable it's such a massive industry um with such a great impact in terms of um you know global warming climate change i mean 40 odd percent of global emissions is associated to the built sector 60 percent of total waste generated in the uk is associated to construction alone yes you know i mean the numbers are staggering and when you think about what you can achieve with modern methods of construction again the pilot projects that have embraced that approach the number is staggering in terms of the savings that are achieved in terms of efficiency speed of construction energy savings carbon reduction it's unbelievable and why we haven't embraced this it still boggles my mind it just goes to show how slow you know the industry is in terms of turning around it is it because of the size because of how fragmented it is but it's it's just a whole lot of issues around and i know the government has been trying to push this forward um there is a famous you know review mm, modernized yes. by report again which you can make a strong case for MMC. Uh, and I think we need a stronger driver for this going forward. Um, I'm not saying it's the panacea for all things construction and building, but insofar as new build is concerned, why not? Yes. 100% yes. all new builds should be towing that approach full stop. And I think, I mean, Mark Farmer has done an enormous amount of work in this field and you know, he laid down the challenge to the industry of modernize or die. And I think that that holds true as much today as it has done 
when he published that report. I think we're making progress. I do like to end these things on a, on a slightly optimistic uh, tone. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's not to say that we, you know, I think there's so much more to do. And I hope that people have found this interesting, given them a bit of a guide as to how they tackle these issues and lays down a bit of a gauntlet to do some introspection mm. and mm. to really, you used this word a number of times through this conversation about honesty. And I mm. think that is it. You know, I don't think it's about sort of you know, greenwashing or presenting no. just a, an overly optimistic picture for fear of criticism. I think you need to do that analysis first. Tunde, so again, thank you for your time. Um, that's been an excellent conversation. I think we've given people a lot of food for thought, laid mm. down some challenges. Mm. And is there anything as a sort of final or closing thought or challenge to the industry that you want to say? Oh, thanks, Dave. I think uh, the sentiments are mutual. It's been an absolute pleasure. It's always a pleasure talking to you. And I'm sure there'll be many more conversations to be had. But I, I think, um, you know, we've teased out a few keywords, you know, in our conversation today. We talked about honesty, being honest about where we are and what we're doing. Another keyword is intentionality. We need to be a lot more intentional and deliberate about what we're doing, you know, our social purpose, you know, and um, looking after people, looking after the planet and not just profit there's got to be an evolutionary big paradigm shift in the industry that there is a huge risk which we face but also there's an amazing opportunity for real estate and construction to make a huge difference in the world that we live in today esg is not the end in itself but i see it as a means to an end it means to the future that we want a, a way to paint a vision you know a way to set our purpose and align it with our activities and a way to measure how we're getting there to understand the journey to where we want to go and, and i like to see people to see people and you know members of the industry and even further afield to see for what it is as a means to an end not an end in itself yes and and what a lovely note to end on today thank you for that and, and to anyone interested in learning more about these subjects talking to, to tunde or to trous about this obviously we're on linkedin we have websites please subscribe as well to trower's podcasts wherever you find your podcasts online and we look forward to continuing these conversations you have been listening to a podcast brought to you by trowers and hamlins find us at trowers.com and join in the conversation on twitter at trowers or find us on linkedin and instagram